You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Gracious God, we ask this day that you might give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts to receive your word written for us. And these things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. To stand before God is to come face to face with our Creator. It is to discover why we exist and to find our place in this world. Standing before God means to receive forgiveness, grace, mercy, and salvation. As his created people, to stand before God is to experience life itself. You know, cultures throughout history have all grasped for the divine because beyond all their differences, they all share a fundamental instinct. We need to know our maker. You see, all of us, Christian or not, need to stand before our God. That is our great need. But it is also our great problem. For whilst our greatest need is to stand before the Lord, our greatest problem is that the Lord is holy. Not only is He pure and perfect, distinct and different, He is totally unlike us. And the only way in which we can stand before a holy God is if we ourselves are holy. So it begs the question, doesn't it? Who is holy to see the Lord? Or in the, in the words of 1 Samuel 6.20, who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? That, that's the question this passage confronts us with today. Who can stand before our holy God? And friends, let me be very honest, the answer that it offers is sobering news. You see, over the last three chapters, we've seen God's glory on full display. In 1 Samuel 4, we saw that God is sovereign. He cannot be controlled, not even by his own people. In 1 Samuel 5, we saw that God is powerful. He cannot be conquered, not even by his greatest enemies. And today, in 1 Samuel 6, we see that God is holy. He cannot be approached, not by anyone. Who can stand before our holy God, this passage asks. Its answer, not the Philistines, not the Israelites, not even us. No one can stand before our holy God. Well, friends, look with me at verses 1 to 12. Last week we saw that Yahweh has been judging the Philistines. From Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, His hand of judgment has been striking their cities with a plague of tumors or swellings. But instead of doing what we might consider to be the logical thing of returning the ark to Israel, no, the Philistines continue to play this deadly game of pass the parcel. 
Over seven months, the ark moves presumably to the remaining cities of Philistia. And just as God's hand came against Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, it now falls on Gaza and Ashkelon. Finally, after enduring five rounds of judgment, the Philistines ask their priests in verse 2, what should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us. Tell us how we can send it back to its place. Now that might seem like the obvious option, wouldn't it? And yet, this is the greatest admission of defeat. The Philistines are supposed to be the great military power. After all, just two chapters ago, they slaughtered 30,000 Israelite soldiers. They even captured Yahweh, their God. Gosh, no, the Philistines, they should be reveling in the glory of their victory. But instead, this once proud nation is brought to its knees. And notice that for the very first time, the Philistines acknowledge the Lord. They no longer speak of the ark of Israel's God. No, they say the ark of Yahweh. We don't need to travel very far into this passage. Right at the beginning of this chapter, we already have an answer to our question. Who can stand before our holy God? Not the Philistines. Not God's great enemy. So in verse 3, the Philistine priests, they hatch a plan. This is what they're going to do. They're going to send the Ark of Israel back and they will send it with an offering to satisfy God's holy judgment. This offering will be like compensation for damages as such against God's people. It will be a public acknowledgement of their own guilt. In many ways, the Philistines are saying, we need to settle our debts with God. So along with the ark, they send a guilt offering of five gold objects. Now, now these objects are in the shape of a tumor or swelling, the, the very plague with which Yahweh afflicted the Philistine cities. And we read of five gold mice, either because of the connection between mice and a plague, or, or maybe simply because of the shape of a mouse is similar to the shape of a swelling. We shouldn't read too much uh, into the detail of this, other than to heed this warning. God's holy wrath must be satisfied. And the only way to satisfy His wrath, the only way to atone for our sins, is through an offering of what seems to be equal or comparable value. If you want to stand before our holy God, you need something or someone to atone for your sins and to carry them away. If you want to stand before our holy God, you need to hear, heed the words of verse 5. Ironically, the advice, the plea of the Philistine priests and diviners, give glory to Israel's God. Acknowledge that He alone is the King. Humble yourself under His mighty power. Submit yourself to His gracious rule. Sing. Sing with Hannah. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And if we do that, if we give glory to God, verse 5 holds out this hope, perhaps He will stop oppressing us. Our problem, of course, is that, well, I don't know about you, none of us naturally want to give glory to God. 
Because if we acknowledge Him as our King, then we have to give up control of our lives. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. To be honest, I don't like it when anyone tells me how to live, let alone God. No, I want to be the master of my faith and the captain of my soul. So I act like a child who refuses to obey his parents simply to assert his own independence. I dig my heels in, I grip more tightly to my life, and just like the Egyptians and Pharaoh in Exodus, I harden my heart against the Lord. But verse 6 asks us, why? Why? Why harden your hearts? Just think about it, in Exodus 14, that's what the Egyptians did. The Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts against God, and it only ended in judgment. And friends, if it didn't end well for them, why do you think it will end well for you? Now, Egypt was the great superpower of its day, but even they couldn't stand before our holy God. What makes us think we can? Don't be proud. Don't seek to prevail by your own strength. Don't be stubborn and resist the Lord. Give glory to God. And do not harden your hearts. Now at this point, some of the Philistines may have been thinking, no, no, this isn't God's judgment. All of this is just a natural disaster, an accident, maybe even a pandemic of some sort. Yahweh cannot be so powerful. So to prove whether this really is the hand of God at work, the Philistine priests set up a test in verses 7 to 12. This is what they'll do that they'll load a cart with the Ark of God and the five guilt offerings. They will hitch that cart to two cows that have never been ridden before. And they will send those cows on their way. Now, if those cows walk towards Beth Shemesh in Israel, it will be proof positive that this plague is the judgment of God. But if they don't, then God is not powerful. This plague is nothing more than a mere accident. But one more detail. Before they send those cows on their way, the Philistines tamper with the test. They separate these two cows from their young, from their calves, so that the natural maternal instinct of these cows will lead them not towards Beth Shemesh, but towards their own young. In, in many ways, they're rigging this test so that if the cows do walk towards Beth Shemesh, towards Israel, it could only ever be a miracle of a holy God. And yet, in verse 12, that's exactly what happens. Notice, the cows go straight up the road to Beth Shemesh, never straying to the right or to the left, as if to show us this is clear beyond a shadow of a doubt. There is no one holy like the Lord, and He will judge all those who oppose Him. Who can stand before our holy God? Not the Philistines, not even God's greatest enemy. Maybe you're not a person of faith and your Christian friend has dragged you here to church today. And if that's you, firstly, I'm really glad that you're here and I'm really glad that you're engaging with the Bible. It's entirely possible that you might not believe that God exists. And even if He did, He's not actually a God who you think deserves any glory. 
As you look at our world in your eyes, Christianity is fundamentally a force for conflict and oppression in our world. You might even consider yourself someone opposed to God. Uh, We all know that warnings are hard to hear, but important to heed. We all know that, don't we? Warnings are hard to hear, but important to heed. If you don't improve your performance, we may have to let you go. If you don't fix this problem, you might lose all your friends. Friends, none of these warnings are fun to hear, but we all need people who love us enough to warn us, don't we? Friends, I want you to know that God loves you enough to give you a warning that I know is hard to hear. But it is so important to heed. If we oppose the Holy God, we will incur His judgment. And Hannah warns us, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. 1 Samuel 6 is warning us, it's it's a fool's errand to oppose the Lord. Just look at the Egyptians. Look at the Philistines. Look at how it ended for both of them. If they couldn't escape his judgment, what makes us think we can? That isn't a fun warning to hear, I know. But it is a warning important to heed. Please, do not harden your heart against the Lord. The Lord is so loving enough to warn us this day, God is holy and no enemy can stand before him. Who can stand before our holy God? not the Philistines, but also in the second half of this passage, not the Israelites either. You see, you might think it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that God's enemies can't stand before him, but surely his own people can. Of all people, surely Israel is holy enough to stand before their holy God. But that is not what we find in the second half of this chapter. In verse 13, sure, it starts off well. That the people of Beth Shemesh, they're overjoyed to see the ark, and, and so they should be. That the glory of their God has returned, and with his glory comes his presence, his, his power, and his blessing. So, so out of joy and thanksgiving, that what do they do? They chop up the cart, and they offer the two cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. That the Levites then take the ark and the guilt offering and place them on the altar of a large rock as if to exalt the Lord before the eyes of Israel. In verses 17 and 18, we then read a summary of God's victory. And the rock on which the ark now rests is the mantelpiece on which God's glory and holiness is displayed. What what a fitting welcome to the return of their holy God. But all too quickly we realize that Israel has not much changed from two chapters ago. I want you to picture for a moment a young boy who, in a moment and flash of rage, strikes out at his own father. Now, as you'd expect, the father disciplines his son. He takes away his toys, he confines him to his room, he he asks him to apologize. He humbles his son to teach him that in the future, that is not appropriate. He must respect him. And surely after all of that, you'd expect the son to have learned his lesson, wouldn't you? That in future, he will know to respect his father. 
And when we look at Israel, we would think, wouldn't we, that after being humbled by their God for having abused His glory, Israel would have learned their lesson. That now with the return of their God and His ark, they would humble themselves under Him and they would respect and glorify their King. But just like a stubborn child, it looks like Israel has not learnt their lesson. In verse 19, the people of Beth Shemesh look inside the ark and God then strikes them down in judgment. Now I know reading this you might think, Adam, this just seems totally disproportionate. Even if, even if looking in the ark is so serious, does it really justify the deaths of so many? But Hannah sung, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. You see, friends, Yahweh is so holy that nothing and no one can stand before Him, let alone or especially on our own terms. No, when we stand before our holy God, we come on His terms. We approach the King and the throne as the King would have us. And in Numbers 4, God prohibits anyone from even looking at the objects within the ark and He gives the warning, or they will die. Friends, this is not somehow the arbitrary rule of an insecure king. This is the loving warning of a holy God. A God who wants His unholy people to stand before Him and yet without being killed. But friends, can you see, this ark is as deadly for Israel as it is for the Philistines. And so in verse 20, we find the defining question of this passage, the defining question of our day. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Not the Philistines. Not even the Israelites. No one. No one can stand before our holy God. And friends, surely therein lies our great dilemma. We can't live without Him, and yet we can't live with Him. On the one hand, we cannot live without our holy God, for it is from God alone that we receive mercy, grace, forgiveness and salvation. In Him alone is found true life. We cannot live without our God. And yet, we also cannot live with Him. None of us can stand before our holy God, for none of us is as holy as He. And we cannot presume that God will accept us simply because we belong to His visible church. Just like Israel, our horizontal belonging does not guarantee our vertical acceptance. Standing in the church does not allow us to stand before the Lord. Friends, all of us stand on equal ground before the throne of God. None of us can stand before our holy God. So in verse 20, the Israelites ask, to whom should the ark go from here? Is there someone holy enough to receive the ark of God? But this chapter ends with no clear answer. Instead, the Israelites send the ark to a backwater place called Kiriath-Jerim. And there they leave the ark for 20 long years. 
as that question remains unanswered. Is there anyone who can stand before our holy God? Not the Philistines. Not the Israelites. Not even us. You know, many of us have a very casual attitude as we approach the Lord. We come to Him whenever we want and however we want. And we forget that without the Lord Jesus, actually, we could not stand before the Holy God. Without the Lord Jesus, we could not approach Him. Hebrews 12 reminds us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. God is so holy that if we are not as holy as He, we cannot see Him and we cannot stand before Him. And if we cannot stand before Him, we cannot receive His mercy, we cannot receive His grace, we cannot receive His forgiveness, and we cannot receive His salvation. You see, friends, no one can stand before our holy God, but if no one can stand, then no one can be saved. I know, hearing all this bad news, you might wonder why the gospel is called good news at all. But 1 Samuel 6 wants to confront us with our great problem so that we can see God's greater solution. For the stars shine most brightly against the darkest night sky. This chapter, it ends with that, uh, with that unanswered question, to whom should the ark go from here? Who is holy enough to receive the ark of God? And it would not be for another 20 years, 20 long years, until the ark would be brought back. And it would be brought back by King David. At least initially, the one who can stand before our holy God is God's anointed king. Hannah was right all along. God will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. And yet, even in 2 Samuel 6, King David asked this question, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? You see, in the end, what we realize is that even King David could not stand. And if he cannot stand, then who can? Many years later, a son of David would come. An anointed king who is holy enough the only one holy enough to stand before a holy God. You see, God would send His Son, Jesus, to be that anointed King. And right this very moment, yes, right now, King Jesus stands before our holy God in heaven. And Hebrews 9 says, He appears in the presence of God for us. Surely those two words, for us, are the most amazing words of Hebrews 9. It is not simply that Jesus is the only holy one who can stand before a holy God, but He stands there for you and me. Friends, do you realize what this means? It means that for all the problems that 1 Samuel 6 have given us, Jesus is the answer. No one could stand before the holy God because no one is truly holy. But now we can stand before the Holy God because Jesus stands for us. 
We will never be good enough, pure enough, or holy enough to stand before God in our own right. But friends, where we cannot stand, Jesus stands for us. And where He stands for us, there He can save us. You see, because Jesus stands before God for us, we need not fear the judgment. Because Jesus stands before God for us, we can receive mercy, grace, forgiveness and salvation. Because Jesus stands before God for us, we can confidently approach the throne of God. Some years ago, uh, one of my friends uh, somehow had a meeting in the Prime Minister's office in Parliament House. And he told me, he said, I walked there and I, as I approached the doors, I was stopped by security. And the man said, sir, I'm sorry, this is a restricted area. Authorised personnel only. And you are not authorised. You cannot be here. But then one of the Prime Minister's staff rounded the corner, walked up to security and said, don't worry, it's okay. Let him in. He can come through me. You see, my friend, he had no right of his own to be in that place. But he could enter because someone who had the right chose to stand for him. We have no holiness in our own right to stand before the Lord. But we can enter God's throne room because Jesus, the one and only person who is truly holy, stands for us. And because He stands, in Hebrews 10, God invites you and me, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God is inviting you to draw near to Him to receive mercy, grace, forgiveness and salvation. You, you might look at your own life, your own heart, your own past, your own history, and you might think that with all of your guilt and shame, there is no way that you could come to God. And in one sense, you're right, but only by half. You see, it is true that in your own right, even in my own right, we cannot stand before the Holy God. But in Jesus, we can. We can stand before Him, not in fear, but as Hebrews 10 says, in full assurance of faith. We can stand before our God confident that we've been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And all we have to do is ironically... Heed the words of the Philistine priests. Give glory to God. Acknowledge that Jesus is King. Submit your life to His gracious rule. Lay down the pride that stops you from following Him. The Philistine priest then said, Perhaps, perhaps God will lift His hand of judgment from you. But through Jesus, we can say, not perhaps, but definitely, God will lift His hand of judgment from us. And for us Christians, we need to realize that the only reason we can stand before our holy God is because Jesus stands for us. 
And that means when we come before Him, we must approach Him with fear and trembling at His incomparable holiness and glory. But because Jesus stands for us, not only can we come to God, though God wants us to come to Him. In Hebrews 4, He invites us. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. What an invitation! What an offer! What a blessing! When you think about where we used to be, when we think about the state we were once in where we could not stand before God now, what a privilege that we can approach the throne of grace, not with shame at our sin, but with confidence in our King. I realize, though, it's sad because so many of us live as if Jesus has not resolved the problem of 1 Samuel 6. We still live as if we cannot stand before our holy God. We live as if Jesus does not stand for us. And so, instead of approaching the throne to find the grace of God, we avoid the throne to flee the wrath of God. Instead of humbling our hearts, we harden our hearts. We harden our hearts when we refuse to admit or confess our sin. We harden our hearts when we do not think or deny that we need God's help. We harden our hearts when we try to fix our sin on our own rather than bring it to the Lord. We harden our hearts when we think that Jesus' holiness is not powerful enough to cover our sin. Friends, do not harden your heart against the Lord. No, humble yourself under Him. And just as God promised Hannah, all who humble themselves under the Lord, the Lord will lift up in love. Yes, it's true. In our own right, no one can stand before the holy God. Not the Philistines and not the Israelites. But in Jesus, we can. We can. So humble your heart, draw near to God, and look to Him for mercy, grace, forgiveness, and salvation. God is inviting you this day. Will you come? Let me pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We know that we cannot come before you in our own right. We know that in our sin and our guilt and our shame, we have no standing before a God as holy as you. And yet because of Jesus, we can pray. Because of Jesus, we can come to you. Because of Jesus, we can stand before you. And so, God, as we tremble at your holiness, we give deep thanks and praise for your Son. And we pray these things in his holy name. Amen.